0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Debrief, I'm Devin Dwyer. Well, Congress has reached a deal to avoid a government shutdown, but will it hold? We have the latest from the White House coming up. Plus, wicked weather now slamming the upper Midwest, sliding into the east. How bad will it get? We've got a live report from Philadelphia. And teachers are on the strike for a second straight day in Denver. What's going on in those classrooms in Colorado? All that and more coming up after your headlines.
1: the torpedoes.
2: Full speed ahead. A retired astronaut now has his sights set on climbing Capitol Hill. Mark Kelly says he's jumping into the race to finish the term of late Arizona Senator John McCain. He's a top Democrat to challenge Senator Martha McSally, who was appointed to the seat late last
3: year.
4: At least
5: 17 people are dead and four more are hurt after a fire ripped through a hotel in India today. It was in central New Delhi and officials say the five-story building had a makeshift sixth floor added on, built out of fiberglass.
2: Three soldiers are hurt after a parachuting accident early this morning at a base in Florida. They were taking part in what the military calls airborne operations at Homestead Air Reserve Base. Fortnite has a new competitor in the video game world. Electronic Arts now says its new Fortnite-like game, called Apex Legends, has now about 25 million players.
1: Eisman Trophy winner Kyler Murray has chosen football over baseball. He says he's fully committed to becoming a quarterback. It comes eight months after he was selected by the Oakland A's in the baseball draft.
0: Well, a blast of winter weather is making for an ugly Tuesday in many parts of the country. 31 states are facing snow, ice, flood, and cold warnings right now. We go to our Eva Pilgrim. She's up in Philadelphia on the road this morning. Eva, how bad is it out there right now?
3: Well, right now here in Philly, we're mostly seeing kind of a mix of things. We saw some hail just a bit ago. Right now, it more looks like a slush I'm looking at the windshield to see if I can gauge how thick it is. It's it's more liquidy, It's somewhere between rain and sleet. So uh, the, the what's coming from the sky, the precipitation is sort of changing, and that's part of why they've taken a lot of these precautions, asking people to be careful. A lot of the schools are off today. They were canceled. There's a, a snow day for the kids. The speeds on the interstates have been lowered to 45. The speeds on the bridges have been lowered to 35. And of course, they've banned uh, anything that could slide on the road, so no cars pulling empty trailers, no double trailers pulled, no RVs, no motorcycles, those kinds of things. Anything they can do to sort of make sure that the cars that are driving are stable and aren't gonna slide around quite as much. And that's sort of the big thing is I'll, I'll watch and say, I know in New York right now you guys are seeing snow and we're actually going to be driving in this car that way to kind of see what the weather looks like as we head that direction um, for tonight but uh, you know that's the concern and what is this going to look like as people go home in the evening commute trying to keep the traffic on the roads to a minimum so no one gets hurt
0: Yeah, and of course, watching those temperatures as they dip back below freezing ice, that water turning to ice on the roads. Eva Pilgrim, stay safe out there in Philly. Thanks so much. Well, our uh, Alex Perez is is over in Chicago, one of the hardest hit airports in this winter storm this week. Alex, uh, you're looking closely at the at the arrival and departure boards there in Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Uh, How bad is it? Chicagoans are used to bad winter weather, but uh, this one seems to be snarling things a bit there.
1: It is snarling things, uh, Devin. This is a widespread storm, so there are a lot of airports in its path, and, of course, that's creating a lot of problems. Take a look at the boards here at O'Hare. Canceled, canceled, canceled. You can see in big red letters there uh, next to some of the flights, uh, lots of cancellations here, more than 1,800 cancellations so far across the country. And uh, I want to show you across the way here. We're going to show shoot outside, and you can see those trees in the distance, see that kind of white. Uh, surrounding the branches? Well, that's actually ice. They're encased in ice. And I want to show you some video of what it looks like other parts of the city. Uh, a lot of people woke up this morning here in Chicago to find that uh, there was an ice glaze uh, everywhere, on sidewalks, on cars that had been sitting outside, even on those iconic lions outside the Chicago Art Institute. Um, and that, of course, is creating a lot of problems. Just trying to get around when everything beneath you is uh, slippery makes it difficult. to Luckily, the city has been out through the night, uh, salting streets here. Uh, Of course, we're no strangers to this kind of weather. And uh, because of that, traffic is moving. The airport is operational. Flights are coming in and out. But those delays and cancellations are creating headaches across the country for a lot of people. Uh, As as Eva mentioned there, the problem with the storm is that it ranges everywhere from snow uh, to rain and sleet, depending on where you are, and that's creating a big headache for a lot of people.
0: Devin? Yeah, Alex, so much for that groundhog day prediction for an early spring. I think we're in for some misery this week uh, out there. Alex Perez uh, for us. Thanks so much. And you know, it's not just the east and the Midwest, but the West Coast getting walloped by snow this week. They're measuring it in feet out there. Our Will Carr is in Mount Hood, Oregon, and filed this report. Hey, Will.
6: Good morning, Devin. Snow is continuing to pound the Pacific Northwest. You can see that we have at least two to three Feet of this light, fluffy snow right here. It has been coming down so much recently that when we were driving. Overnight, We didn't even realize that this was a car. You can see just how much snow has pounded down onto this car. Residents have been trying to dig out. This is the passenger side mirror, just to give you an understanding of how much snow there is on top of this car. There has been so much over the past week. Seattle has had four snowstorms in just the past seven days. On Monday, SeaTac was crippled. Thousands of passengers had their flights either canceled or delayed. We were actually trying to make our way up to Seattle from Los Angeles and had our flights canceled over and over again. All of this snow and ice has also created some very dangerous situations on the interstates, the highways, and the roads all across this region. We're expecting a lot more snow and rain up and down the West Coast in the coming days. Devin.
0: All right, Will Carr, thanks for us uh, for that out in Oregon. Uh, Ginger Z, our chief meteorologist, has the forecast for the country. Hey, Ginger.
7: Uh, oh, thank you, Devin. Let's go ahead and talk about these headlines because there are so many to get to. So how about we get into the winter storm for the West Coast? Because there's just been several, four actually for Seattle itself. 20.2 inches of snow, making it the snowiest month in 50 years. Big numbers coming out of there. And it's not over. I mean, more snow for the West. But also, we've got a storm we're watching in the East. Do you see that lion, the famous lion there um, along Michigan Avenue in Chicago from the Art Institute? Well, it got some ice hanging on it. CLOSE TO A HALF INCH OF ICE WAS ACTUALLY REPORTED AT O'HARE AIRPORT. FORTUNATELY, IT SEEMS THEY'VE TREATED THE ROADS WELL AND THEY'RE DOING WELL WITH THIS ICE. BUT I DON'T KNOW THAT THAT'S GOING TO BE THE CASE AS ALL OF THE STORM MOVES EAST. YOU HAD FLOOD, concerns and dangers in arkansas oh, nearly a half foot of rain fell with this storm so you've got schools closed there this morning what you see there is actually a school official carrying a young lady to her home to make sure she gets home safely that's what they had to do because there was that much rain and that's all with the cold front part of this um well was the warm now the cold front so there's more flood watches in place that include cleveland um, knoxville tennessee and parts of kentucky right but look into new england Wisconsin, Northern Michigan, we're all under winter storm warnings and winter weather advisories closer to the coast. Why isn't an advisory here? Well, I think a lot of folks are gonna start to see frozen precipitation through the day, and then that is going to quickly transition later this afternoon and evening To rain, And so if you stop the clock there at 5 p.m., New York City has just changed to rain. And so even if you get that frozen precip and you have either an inch to two inches, maybe some places three inches of snow, and then a little bit of sleet or freezing rain on top of it, it's crunchy, and then the rain takes care of it, especially uh, along the coast, right? So if you're inland and if you're north and west of the coast, I think that's where you'll end up seeing some of the accumulation at least try to stick. But this is a warm front that's going to lift through, and so here's what we think is left behind. If you're looking for snow and big snow, You have to go all the way up into the mountains in New England Devin
0: Hey, thanks ginger a gnarly Tuesday out there. Hope you're staying warm Well here in Washington There's a cautious sense of optimism that Congress may have reached a deal to avoid a government shutdown just three days from now Republican leader Mitch McConnell just took to the floor of the Senate to say he's gonna put the deal up for a vote here it is
6: I Know I speak for members on both sides of the aisle when I say we are grateful To our colleagues on the Appropriations Committee for their leadership, we're eager to see them complete this work. As we speak, our colleagues are working hard to produce a legislative text. I look forward to reviewing the full text as soon as possible and hope the Senate can act on this legislation in short order.
0: The big question, though, is does it have the backing of the president of the United States? Our Karen Travers is over at the White House. She's been talking to White House officials this morning. Karen, so tell us what's in the deal, and what are you hearing about whether the president will support it?
2: Yeah, that was euphoria there from the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, (laughs) Devin, talking about this agreement that was reached in principle last night between the congressional negotiators. And there's optimism on Capitol Hill. It may not sound like it there from Mitch McConnell, but there is optimism that a big hurdle has been crossed and they can avoid a government shutdown. But, Devin, Stop me if you've heard this one before. Right now, all eyes are on President Trump, and a lot of questions about what he will support. Will he agree to this deal? Will he sign it, or is he going to leave a lot of drama and suspense ahead of the deadline? This deal, uh, according to sources, would put 1.375 billion dollars for border fencing and security. That's about 55 miles of new structure. Devin, the president, of course, for months has been saying he wants 5.7 billion dollars, and this is far short of the 200 miles that he would like to see uh, fencing or structures built along the U.S.-Mexico border. So question is, is he going to go along with this? And last night at a rally in El Paso, Texas, right there on the border, the president really didn't give any hints as to what he was going to do. But, Devin, remember, back in December, there was an agreement. There was bipartisan support. That deal actually had a better uh, option for the president, more money that would have been put toward more fencing, and he rejected it, that's what led to the shutdown.
0: Yeah, we'll have to see what they say today. Uh, The president seems inclined perhaps to take a pass on the shutdown, maybe looking at executive action, maybe that a national emergency is still on the table. Karen, but you talked a little bit about the president's trip to Texas last night. He got back just before 3 o'clock this Mm -hmm. morning uh, from those dueling rallies down there. Beto O'Rourke, former congressman from El Paso, holding a rally outside. Our Cecilia Vega was there. I think she put it best. This was like looking at two alternate realities when it comes to border security, the message from the two.
2: The Trump campaign couldn't have teed this up any better for Beto O'Rourke. He's the former congressman. That's his hometown, El Paso, Texas. And he is considering running for president, running for the Democratic nomination. So last night we had President Trump on one side of the screen, Beto O'Rourke on the other. Here's a little bit of what they each had to say.
5: Whether it was those... Safety is the birthright of every American, which is why we must finish the wall it's happening because walls are not immoral as it was said i spoke to people that have been here a long time they said when that wall went up it's Coming a out, it's whole right. different ball game is that a correct statement whole different ball game walls do not make us safer walls will require us to take someone's property their house their farm their ranch to build a wall at a time of record low northbound apprehensions, at a time that El Paso is not the outlier in the cities of the border. In fact, if you look at McAllen, if you look at San Diego, if you look at all points in between, the U.S. cities of the U.S.-Mexico border are far safer than the U.S. cities deeper in the interior of the United States of America.
2: And, Devin, no surprise, federal work has very different views on a border wall uh, than President Trump. But there was also comments yesterday from the Republican mayor of El Paso, Texas, also pushing back on what the president would like to do, and the president's notion that a border wall there uh, dropped crime rates. You know, the president talked about this in his State of the Union when he said that there were very high rates of violent crime in El Paso, then a wall was built and crime dropped. When actually, fact checks and numbers show that those crime rates were falling before the wall was built. DEVIN, IF YOU'RE BETTER AT WORK AND YOU WANT TO CUT THROUGH WITH A VERY LARGE DEMOCRATIC field, WHAT A PERFECT OPPORTUNITY THERE TO GO AFTER THE PRESIDENT, GO ONE-ON-ONE, GET IN THE SPOTLIGHT AT THE PRESIDENT'S FIRST RALLY OF 2019 AND DRAW A CONTRAST LIKE THAT
0: yeah we'll see what beto o'rourke does in terms of the 2020 presidential race long rumored contender will he get in won't he karen i know you'll be following it Uh, and thanks for your reporting from the white house today karen travers for us there let's go to denver now where teachers public school teachers there are striking for a second day demanding higher wages it's the first time those teachers have gone on strike in 25 years micah smith from our affiliate kmgh uh, is live for us in denver micah great to see you again today so Remind us how many teachers are on strike right now, and what about those reports you've been seeing about chaos in some of these classrooms and schools that have been kept open?
8: Devin, where I am, there are about 100 teachers that are dancing, shouting, and picketing, but according to the teachers union, there are about 3,700 educators participating in strike activities. To give you an idea of what that means, that's 86% of Denver teachers. I wanna walk into the crowd just a little bit so you can get an idea of how large this crowd is. You may be wondering, with all these educators out here, what's going on in the classroom? Well, we actually got some video from inside of East High School, very close to where I'm standing, showing chaos students walked out of class flooded into the hallways and started having an impromptu party by their lockers we have asked Denver Public Schools what's up with that we're waiting for a response from them
0: uh, impromptu party in the hallways uh, is quite something um, and we know they've had trouble getting substitutes to fill some of those classrooms you've been talking to some teachers and in fact I think you have some uh, nearby there give us a sense of how they're feeling how long do they think this is going to go on
8: Devin, they say as long as it takes. I want to go ahead and bring in teacher Charlie Gorey. Charlie teaches English. Uh, Charlie, tell me, why are you personally on strike? So I've been a teacher for
9: 14 years. I have a master's degree. Um, about... Three years ago, I realized that I was not going to be able to have my own children. I wouldn't be able to afford to do it. I'm physically capable, but don't have the money to be able to actually raise a family in Denver. So I started doing foster care. And one of the things that I would say is it allows me because of cost of living in Denver, because of Medicaid stipends, on a teacher's salary, I would have to pay $1,200 out of pocket every month if I had a family. And I'd also have to cover daycare. And on my current salary, that's just not within the realm of possibility. So yesterday I said goodbye to my fifth foster child. And so as a a woman who wants to be a mother, I basically have to sacrifice my own dreams. Um, I love being a foster parent. I would really like to have my own children, but it's just not a reality for me. I won't be able to do it with the current salary.
8: Charlie, a lot at stake with this strike today. Teachers will be heading back to the negotiation table with the school district uh, within an hour. What are you hoping happens within the first few hours of negotiations? I would really
9: like it if Susanna Cordova would decide that teachers are worth investing in in a real sustainable way. We give weekends, we give our lives, we give our commutes, we give everything up so that we can work in Denver Public Schools for our kids. And it would be really nice to be able to get a raise without having to jump through a 1,000 hoops because we already work really, really hard for this community. And so I'd like it if she would agree to our uh, bargaining schedule that is similar to every other district in the area. Right now, we have to do everything within our power pay thousands of dollars for education in order just to get a marginal raise and it's not fair and it's not sustainable and this would be if we don't get a significant raise this will be my last year in Denver Public
8: Schools and I will move back home to Montana where I can actually afford to have a family. Last question for you this is a part of a national conversation have you been inspired by teacher strikes across the country? I really have I think that as a country we really
9: really are finally fighting for what is right for our our kids and our communities. Um, I think teachers are finally saying, hey, if I wanna make a life and a home and stay a teacher forever, like the people who inspired me when I was growing up, then it's time for us to stand up and really, really work for each other and work for our communities to make things better.
8: All right, thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. Well, there's about 10 hours of negotiations ahead of teachers and Denver public schools. So we will see, Devin, if in those 10 hours they can reach an agreement and get these teachers back in the classroom.
0: Micah Smith, thank you for that reporting. Terrific job out there. KMGH, our affiliate in Denver. Great to see Micah. Let's go to Virginia now, where that political stalemate has now stretched into a second week and battled Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. You see him there on the left. You see Mark Herring, the attorney general on the right. Lieutenant Governor uh, Justin Fairfax also involved in scandal. Well, there's been no movement on any of those fronts. Ralph Northam vowing to stay on the job and has just announced he's going to take a listening tour across the state to talk about race with various communities. Our Zachary Keish is is in Richmond uh, for us. Zachary, a listening tour. How is that going over down there in the Capitol?
4: I haven't heard directly how people have been receptive to the actual tour itself. We do know. Uh, that a lot of people were listening to that interview that he did on Sunday. At, at what point he referred uh, to the black experience in here in, in Virginia as uh, indentured servants. Uh, I think that rubbed folks uh, the wrong way in a lot of cases. He isn't necessarily somebody who has exemplified that he understands uh, the black experience in this country. And for some, it seemed to minimize that. I've talked to a, a number of professors in this space, a number of academics who say, you know, when you when you really look at the details, there there is a delineation there, and depending on the timeline, uh, there is a time that you could call uh, what happened to Africans brought here as indentured servants, but certainly, um, again, the governor hasn't necessarily exemplified an ability uh, to, uh, to, to, to hit the right tone uh, on a number of these issues. So that will continue. He's calling this his racial reconciliation tour.
0: And also talking about promoting some policies to back that up. We shall see no indication he's stepping down. Meanwhile, Zachary, you've been following the uh, the scandal surrounding the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax. Impeachment proceedings were put on hold. But uh, what are you hearing about efforts to investigate him and these two allegations of sexual misconduct against him?
4: (laughs) Yeah, Devin. I mean, let's start from the beginning here. I mean, the uh, blackface, KKK robe photo comes out related to the governor, just as I'm out here talking about the idea that Justin Fairfax, right, the lieutenant governor, a young black man who is Ivy school educated and uh, certainly has an incredible history of his own as the descendant of slaves, uh, just as I'm talking about the ability that he might have to step into this role, these allegations come out. So, the first one comes out, uh, it dates back to 2004, a woman says that that she was forced by Fairfax to perform oral sex. Uh, And then, days later, I mean, that was damaging. uh, And that certainly uh, deserved attention and investigation. Uh, But then, just days later from that, a woman uh, came out from his days as an undergraduate student at Duke and said that Fairfax had raped her. Uh, And and, and that's really what brings us to where we are now. I mean, it was uh, obviously... A, a, a big, big deal. Uh, and I'm to give you some details related to that. So, she says that Fairfax and uh, her were actually friends uh, and that she had been uh, raped by someone on the Duke basketball team. A year prior to this. Now, we've heard from that uh, person, uh, a gentleman by the name of Corey McGetty, ESPN is reporting that uh, Corey McGetty vehemently denies that uh, he had anything to do with this, that this was a rape. And so that makes two people, right, Uh, Mr. McGetty and Mr. Fairfax, who say uh, these allegations just aren't true. Uh, And we're also hearing from Duke. Uh, Duke has put out a number of statements, but nothing that necessarily uh, brings any clarity to the issue. They say that they're looking into the issue, um, but they have not uh, spelled out what was done on their end. And uh, just to give you an idea of what's going on here today, on one side, you have Republicans. On the other side, you have the Democrats. Uh, their caucus meeting is going on. And, obviously, the elephant in the room on the Democratic side is Justin Fairfax. Devin, back to you.
0: Yeah, the elephant in the room, and uh, what a stalemate it is. Zachary Quiche, thanks for your reporting down there in Richmond. We'll be back with you, I'm sure, later this week. To Venezuela now, where demonstrators are planning uh, a major uh, protest today in the streets in support of opposition leader Juan Guaido. This as President Nicolas Maduro is blasting the United States as a, quote, gang of extremists and says he will not allow aid, humanitarian aid, into his country. Uh, our Bruno Rober is staged in Colombia on the Colombia-Venezuelan border. Where that aid is positioned, it has been blocked uh, by the Maduro regime from entering the company, country. Uh, Bruno, great to see you. Give us the scene there. What's the situation with the aid uh, and what's going on behind you?
5: Well, in, this, in essence, what this crisis is all about is all about us here. If I walk around, we're, I'm in Colombia, but we're on the border with Venezuela. As you can see, they're just hordes of people walking back and forwards. This side, people are coming from Venezuela, coming to buy essential items that they can't buy over there. On this side, people are returning to Venezuela. And this is, in a sense, the crux of the issue here, which is the deprivation that's being experienced by hundreds of thousands of people in Venezuela. Now, both sides of the clash, the battle for the future of Venezuela, are accusing each other of politicizing humanitarian aid, which is being positioned on the border not far from here. In a sense, Both are right, really. Both sides are politicizing it. As you said, Nicolas Majoro has said he's not going to let the aid into Venezuela. This is an attempt at interference led by the U.S. and would, in a sense, be tantamount to an invasion. So he's blocking the aid. Meanwhile, the opposition leader, the interim president, Juan Guaido, is saying he's using the aid as a rallying cry for his supporters and has been talking and maybe giving some more details later on today about the idea of having a mass protest to try and bring the aid across themselves. to to break the blockade is also daring the military to say stop and actually, as it were, shoot or obstruct their own citizens. So there's a lot riding on the humanitarian aid, but at the moment, it hasn't moved. It hasn't, nothing's actually happened. And this is the danger the opposition find themselves in, I think, is that if they don't do something soon, they have to, you know, there's a day Nicholas Maduro can wait them out.
0: And, Bruno, uh, real quickly, a fascinating scene there behind you, a free-flowing border. I'm sort of surprised that the, that both sides d- don't seem to be controlling human movement on, uh, in either direction there. Uh, paint a little bit more of a picture of, have you seen any, mu- any, any exodus of sorts of people leaving, fleeing Venezuela, or are they pretty much returning back there oh. to their homes?
5: No, I mean, there's a flow of people, but there are upwards of three million Venezuelans have actually left the country and are living on the borders of Colombia in, in Brazil and other countries in the region desperate so desperate are the situations over there they'd rather eke out some sort of life and I don't know if you can see people selling stuff along the side of the road many many of these people are Venezuelans who are living right here some of them on the street trying to eke out some sort of life and it's better here and imagine that than over there in Venezuela, so really desperate. And essentially, this is the core of what this whole battle is about, is the deprivation and the the, the, the starvation almost of people in Venezuela. I mean, starvation, but certainly difficulties.
0: Yeah, really a a difficult situation to say the least. Bruno Rober, great to have you there on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. Terrific reporting, sir. Thank you. Let's go now to Caracas, where our Cody Weddle has been tracking the protests, which are happening today in support of Juan Guaido. It's very loud there in the streets. Cody, uh, set the scene for us. What's happening today in Caracas?
10: Well, we are seeing these protests here. Tens of thousands of people are marching basically to a stage that is just over my shoulder. We can't see it here, but that's where we expect Wang Guaido once once again to come out and speak to folks here and other opposition leaders. And I can still see uh, back this way, there are probably several thousand more people still marching this way. So a massive turnout here once again for this anti-government protest like we've been seeing. And the excitement here really continues. Uh, They feel like change really is about to happen. That's even though, as Bruno was saying, nothing has really uh, happened significant over the past few days. They need more defections within the military. Uh, They need uh, more signals from people inside the government um, that they're willing to flip over to Wang Guaido's side. But there still is a sense here uh, that change is coming.
0: And, and Cody, there had been so much concern early on when these protests broke out uh, about a potentially violent response from the Venezuelan military. What presence does the Venezuelan military have at these protests? Do you see them? Are they around? And is there any any concern about that now?
10: We have seen some members of the Venezuelan National Police protest. We are in Caracas's east. This is. A PLACE THAT HAS TRADITIONALLY BEEN uh, OPPOSITION TERRITORY. AND IN OTHER PARTS OF CARACAS THAT TRADITIONALLY HAVE BEEN MORE um, PRO-GOVERNMENT, WE'VE BEEN SEEING THAT uh, AUTHORITIES HAVE NOT BEEN ALLOWING PEOPLE TO to GATHER AND MARCH TO THIS PLACE HERE. SO THERE'S CERTAINLY A TACTIC WITHIN THE GOVERNMENT TO NOT ALLOW PEOPLE um, IN WORKING-CLASS AREAS GATHER. THEY WILL will ONLY ALLOW IT FOR NOW HERE. AND WE DON'T EXPECT THIS MARCH TO TURN VIOLENT HERE uh, SINCE THEY'RE NOT PLANNING TO MARCH TO DOWNTOWN.
0: All right. Cody Weddle for us in Caracas, Venezuela. Terrific reporting. Cody, we'll be back with you later this week. Thank you, sir. That's all for the debrief today. Hope you join me later this afternoon for our political show, The Briefing Room, 3.30 p.m. Eastern time here on ABC News Live. And of course, join us for World News Prime, 8 p.m. Eastern and download the ABC News app if you don't have it. Great resource to have in your pocket. I'm ABC's Devin Dwyer in Washington. We'll see you next time. Ex- executed with Cody you gonna, gonna
5: do some
0: pages? what pages am I doing remind me generic toss to Alex and to Karen